Welcome to Under the Bubble, a show that brings you into conversation with the Princeton community, both on and off campus. This week, we'll be sitting down with Masha Mura and Gino Feliz, two leaders of Students for Prison Education and Reform, better known as SPEAR. We'll be shining a light on the work SPEAR has been doing to fight mass incarceration and the carceral state more broadly for the past eight years. This is Episode 5, Spearheading a Movement. Since its founding in 2012, Spear has orchestrated a number of highly visible protests on campus. Their yearly solitary confinement protest involves 23 performers occupying a 7-foot by 9-foot rectangle for an hour each, consecutively. The act symbolizes the 23 hours a day that a confined person would spend in a space that size. Spear also leads the Ban the Box movement at Princeton, an effort to remove the conviction history question from university applications. It also holds an annual conference that covers a different facet of the prison system each year, with topics ranging from prison abolition to how prisons impact non-incarcerated people. But Spears' work goes deeper than the protests that can be seen and heard around campus. From its many projects that support the broader Mercer County community, to its most recent prison divestment campaign, there is much more that happens behind the scenes. The following interview will give you an inside look into Spear and the prison abolition movement in 2020. Hi everyone, my name is Isabel. I'm a podcast producer at The Daily Princetonian. I'm currently joined by two student leaders from SPEAR, or Students for Prison Education and Reform. So let's start out with some introductions. Let's give your name, pronouns, maybe a few fun facts, your concentration, that sort of thing. Cool, I can start. Hi everyone, my name is Masha, a pronoun she, her, hers. I am a rising senior, so I'm in the class of 2021. On campus, I am co-president of SPEAR, and I'm also an RCA for Whitman College, and I'm also representative for my department. And I'm Gina. I'm a rising junior, so class of 2022. I'm majoring at the Wilson School. Quick update. Since recording, the university has moved to change the name of the Woodrow Wilson School to the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. This motion came after pressure from many student activist groups, as well as the growing public consciousness of the Black Lives Matter movement following the murder of George Floyd. You can find our coverage of the moment at a link in the description of this episode. And on campus, I'm really involved in SPEAR. I'm on the masthead for the NAS Weekly, and I also help tutor ESL through El Centro, which is a pay center group. So both of you are involved with SPEAR, which is Students for Prison Education and Reform. So I was really hoping that you guys could kind of take us through prison abolition and police abolition, where that idea comes from, what its origins are, and a little bit of the background of that movement, since it's fairly new to a lot of people. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, police abolition, just like prison abolition, um, really comes from Black feminist theory. So we always want to acknowledge that when we're doing work that is abolition, we are uplifting the voices of Black feminists because we recognize that's where a lot of the ideology comes from. Because first and foremost, it really is an ideology saying that this system is broken, it's not working, we need to change it completely. And that's where we kind of get into the idea of reform versus abolition. And I know a lot of us on spear leadership really are true abolitionists versus reformists. 
I, I think a good way to put it was something that one of our former presidents tweeted about earlier this week. So I'll just like reference that, but he's Micah Herskin. He's one of the hashtag eight abolition organizers. He was talking about how abolition, you want to look at solutions and things we have in society to kind of fix issues that we criminalize and turn into policing or prison issues. But also like you want to kind of dream for a world where you have different institutions that we might not know what they look like yet. But at the core, we're trying to fix societal problems that do cause mass incarceration and do cause over-policed neighborhoods in like black and brown neighborhoods. You've already touched on it a little bit, but let's talk about how SPEAR came about as an organization and what its roots are. Yeah, so SPEAR was founded in 2012, and I think was just founded in the recognition that there's a gap in student activism and a gap that mainly targets people of color, and so a very important one to address. I think SPEAR was founded really with the intention that it would be an abolitionist organization, but um, I think over the years kind of became known as a reformist organization just because that was the best way to encourage students to join in, just because until very recently, abolition was kind of a, an unthinkable enterprise for many people. But I think also recently that has shifted once again as current leadership has really tried to emphasize that we're not really all that interested in reform. Um, obviously, some reforms are important to make, um, but we're not interested in reforms that give legitimacy back to the system or rebuild it. Um, and make it harder to dismantle in the future. And so I think there's been a longstanding like tradition and tension between abolition and reform that we are really trying to refine and make very clear from the outset that this this is our mission. And I think that's um, reflected in both Spears' overall mission statement as well as in um, the Police Abolition Committee's mission statement and name, really. But yeah, I think it's been exciting to be able to transition more outwardly during this time. I honestly would never have thought that defund the police would become a major demand of the protests. At first, we were seeing the traditional let's ban chokeholds and tinkering reforms to use of force policies. But I think this radical transformation in thought and thinking was really important and really encouraging to see. Yeah, for sure. That's actually something I was really hoping we'd get to touch on is kind of the increase in support that we've seen over the past few weeks and month for both Black Lives Matter, but also things like defund the police or abolishing the police system and prison systems in general. I'll actually show you something that I've, I've been really stuck on for the past week or so. It's a graph from the New York Times that really shows voters' net support for Black Lives Matter. And it's just the, the shift has been really dramatic. And I was hoping that you could kind of touch on what it's been like as part of an organization like Spear that's really been involved as a grassroots movement, what that's been like and kind of how the attitude has shifted from what it was before. I think there's definitely been a lot of mobilization around um, different causes now, things that I guess Spear doesn't necessarily have the capacity or like the student membership to be able to undertake on its own. Um, I think Spear has always struggled in the past with kind of recruiting new members and getting people really, really involved because this kind of work does take up a big amount of space in your life, as it should. Um, and so keeping a consistent membership has always been a bit of a struggle for Spear. But I think um, in reaction to these Black Lives Matter protests, different organizations and different groups have popped up, but also, I guess, amplified their work. We've been able to start building a coalition with a variety of student groups, which has been really exciting. Um, and then there's also 
a more centralized Mercer County movement for abolition and defunding the police. And so it's been exciting to be able to really get in touch with community members as well, as well as um, graduate students recently. And so there are new bodies of students and people that we have been able to tap into and really receive a lot of support from and also support their work recently, which has been very encouraging and really necessary. I guess I'm curious to know what have students been reaching out and asking questions about? What's the most typical question that you would get about an organization like SPEAR, especially recently? What are people's fears maybe or reservations about joining something like SPEAR? I'll just say I think one of the biggest reservations, at least for joining and being like visible within SPEAR, is there's some measure of um, fear that we become very visible to the administration. Like I'll speak to my freshman year, we had our Ban the Box campaign, which I helped organize. And as we were doing our last big teach-in, there were a group of students that decided to silently protest within a CPUC meeting, and they were visible. They were threatened with disciplinary action. Nothing actually did come of it, um, thank goodness, but there is some measure of reservation because you are putting yourself out there, especially even in conversations. If you bring it up casually, you're putting yourself out there if you say, I'm an abolitionist. The immediate reaction, or at least the reaction I'm sure that we've gotten in the past couple of years, maybe not so much now, is like, you're a what? What does that mean? Like, that doesn't make any sense. Why would you want to do that? What are you going to do with all the people that are in prison? So it's things like that. And I think a lot of people are, have been like really receptive um, to asking questions and wanting to learn more. And it's actually super gratifying to see that a lot of the people joining, like we just revamped our policing committee to focus on police abolition Instead of before, we were looking at New Jersey legislation, um, but now we're going to be more all-encompassing. So equal amounts of people were interested in that committee as they were in divestment, which has kind of become a buzzword, especially around college campuses. Um, and it's something very easy to support because it seems like very straightforward, like divest from the prison system, from the prison industrial complex. Um, but just as many people are looking to learn more for abolition, which is just so great to see. And I guess that brings us back to that whole ideological battle between abolition and reform, which is something that I found particularly interesting, is to kind of hear what people are willing to support and where they kind of draw the line. My question for you guys is, where does that clash normally come from? What are the steps towards moving towards abolition and what are Spears' goals for kind of moving towards that place? Well, I would first say that I don't think the tendency to um, want reform is necessarily a nefarious one. Um, I think a lot of us start out, I myself included, started out thinking that reform was a way for tangible change. I think the tension really just comes from a misunderstanding of what abolition itself actually is. Reformists and abolitionists alike are essentially really working towards the same end goal of wanting fundamental change in society in ways that will support marginalized people and kind of dismantle the systems that lead them to be marginalized in the first place. And so I don't think the two are necessarily incompatible. I just think that sometimes reformists tend to support reforms that on face value are, can be really helpful um, and seem very good, but then ultimately restore legitimacy and make it harder to dismantle systems at a later stage. And so abolition um, is very similar, but I think focuses on non-reformist reforms that can slowly start to break down institutions rather than build them back up. Yeah. Do you have maybe an example of a piece of legislation or a reform that would kind of illustrate that? Yeah, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind always is body cameras. Body cameras were hailed as the end-all for 
police reform. And I think we've pretty evidently seen that it hasn't really changed much. It's just not to undermine the importance of having those incidents um, captured on video. But many times these videos are inaccessible to the public. They're not released. They can be turned off by the officer. Like, it's not an end-all to, quote-unquote, fixing the system. Yeah, so another thing that we talked about a little bit already, but I want to kind of emphasize more, is the difference in language in how people spoke about abolitionist groups like Spear before and after the murder of George Floyd. So for a long time, these kind of movements have been considered kind of radical schools of thought, that getting rid of those systems would be something that could never happen. And now we're seeing this new surge in support for for these radical ideas, and they're not as radical as they once were. I, I guess I'm interested in kind of the new projects that Spear is is working on in terms of using this new momentum and what those those projects might look like in a world where we can't all be together in person. Yeah, I can speak a bit to that. So um, as I mentioned before, I'm in our police abolition committee, which I helped to found with another SPEAR member, Michaela Daniel, except we at first were organizing around getting rid of support for qualified immunity, which basically, if anyone doesn't know, absolves officers of legal liability in case of wrongdoing, um, if people want to seek justice in civil court. Um, But we were organizing around that. We've now realized that the administration has removed their support for that doctrine, um, and we were given a lot of leeway with how we wanted to build, so we really do want to focus on police abolition, and that is like within Mercer County on Princeton's campus itself. We want to work on getting more resources to students instead of policing students and make sure that Princeton knows like it is a leader in these kinds of things. It has a job to do. And then from that, we've also restarted our divestment campaign. Yeah, so um, our divestment campaign is a sort of research, like revival of a previous private prison divestment campaign that was conducted just before I got to Princeton. I think it ended in 2016. And so that campaign basically ended with the administration refusing to commit to divesting from private prisons in the future. Currently, we're hoping to expand our demands with the recognition that private prisons ultimately make up a very small percentage of prisons in the United States and with the recognition that many of the corporations that, I guess, serve private prisons also serve state prisons and that this prison industrial complex is a lot larger than than the initial demands uh, covered. And so I think we're looking to expand on that front and kind of make it seem like private prisons are low-hanging fruit. So divestment is no longer unthinkable for private prisons and we want to shoot for the, basically shoot for the moon when it comes to our demands. I think people might be interested to hear more about Princeton's investment in private prisons and kind of what that has looked like and and why a university might be investing in, in things like this. Yeah, well, in terms of the extent to which Princeton University is invested in prisons, it's very difficult to know because Princeton isn't transparent when it comes to its investing portfolio. And so that is information that has historically and is very inaccessible to us and to the student body at large. But I think it's clear that Princeton is invested to some extent by the appearance of Aramark vehicles on campus. And Aramark is a company that caters to prisons and basically serves prisons and has been known for terrible conditions in its food and its staffing. And so we know that to, to a certain extent, Princeton is invested. We just don't know to what extent. Um, and so part of the demands will hopefully be asking Princeton to reveal that information. But in speaking with some other groups, including the fossil fuel divestment campaign, who's doing a lot of very similar work and there are clear intersections when it comes to systemic racism and empowerment from that, 
there is this common goal that we need to under, better understand Princeton's um, investment portfolio. But I guess across universities, that's something that universities have been very resistant to, um, to lose that edge in the market. I don't really <laughs> know why, to be honest. Um, but yeah, that is a kind of a big hurdle that we expect to overcome. But um, we do know to some extent Princeton is invested. Another update. Since our interview, Spear has mobilized the Princeton campaign for prison divestment building off of recommendations made in 2018 to divest Princeton's endowment from private prisons, this campaign now recommends divestment from the entire prison industrial complex. The campaign asks Princeton's student body and its wider community to mobilize against police brutality and systemic imprisonment in an effort to, quote, combat the university's complicity in one of the greatest civil rights violations of the modern era, end quote. The circulated petition, which will be delivered to President Eisgruber and the Board of Trustees, will be made available in our episode description, along with additional resources for you to check out. That kind of leads me to the question of, since Spear is a student-led organization, how much alumni involvement you see, and especially when it comes to investments and that sort of thing, has there been any support from the alumni network and what has that kind of looked like to work with now graduated Princeton students? I think it's really interesting because we're in sort of a unique place in relation to other student groups on campus. We're pretty new. I mean, 2012, it's eight years ago, but really not that long in terms of institutional memory. It's been like two cycles of students from start to finish who have gone through that amount of time. But I know a lot of the alumni we know from the founders of Spear have been so helpful. They really, we could reach out to them at any time and ask them clarifying questions. Um, A lot of them are working as lawyers in New York. Um, So they're very accessible, very knowledgeable, which is wonderful. And I know from time to time we partner with groups like the Princeton Progressives um, for events that we're doing. If we want to receive funding for our annual conference, they've been very supportive of helping Spear realize its goals and educate people. And we talked a little bit about this before, but it's something that has received a lot of talk recently, and that's the presence of campus public safety and the relationship between PSAFE, which is Princeton's public safety department, and PPD, the Princeton Police Department. So if you could kind of speak to what the situation is um, at Princeton, and then we can kind of go from there. Yeah, so public safety, they work pretty closely with PPD. Um, What we found out after meeting with them a couple of times in doing our campaign against qualified immunity PSAFE actually does have jurisdiction in certain areas that are outside of Princeton's campus. Um, They're allowed to act as police officers near the West Windsor train station because there are a lot of Princeton students that happen to go there. They technically have jurisdiction. In Plainsboro, New Jersey, I believe they have some. Totally different town, still in Mercer County, but totally different town. And as far as I can tell, their working relationship with the Princeton Police Department is very strong. Um, And that's after speaking to Chief Paul Obinski in a meeting back in December. He was explaining that they also count on help from the Princeton Police Department if anything happens where they're not legally allowed to do anything about it. Like I think one of the situations they gave us was if there's an active shooter on campus, um, PSAFE is actually allowed to carry weapons in their cars, but they can't take them out unless they're given express permission. So that would be an instance where Princeton Police would come in. Um, and be allowed on campus. So, especially now with police abolition becoming more common, what has kind of the discussion been regarding campus public safety across the United States? 
Well, I think one of the great things about this movement is that it is cross-campus. And so our mission statement itself was kind of mirrored off of Northwestern's statement. Basically, it's called to dismantle its own campus police. And so it's been really nice not only nice, but really helpful for us to be able to craft our demands with the recognition that the same kind of movement is happening all across the country and to be able to like build coalitions in pursuit of that aim across the country. Because obviously this isn't just a Princeton problem. This is something that is mirrored in different universities and different powerful universities. And universities have a lot of, I guess, social capital when it comes to what it is that they do on their campuses that can very, very easily be mirrored by a lot of other institutions in a lot of other cities. And so it's been really encouraging to see a variety of different universities and students at different universities kind of undertaking the same demands. But I think also kind of unfortunate to see that so many of these problems are shared and they exist in so many different places and that the scope of the work kind of just hits you as very large. And so it's been very, it's a very tangible goal to work on Princeton's campus. But I think Spear always wants to do so with the recognition that Princeton is nonetheless a place of privilege and abolition in its wider sense kind of requires going beyond campus borders. Yeah, the scope is truly it's it's everywhere, which is, is a good thing, and it should be everywhere. So I guess we can kind of speak more to that, especially now in, in this time where we are not together all the time. I mean, we're speaking virtually right now. How difficult has it been to kind of sustain this movement that we're seeing when we can't kind of be together? I think for us, it's a, it's a bit different because we're so used to having our weekly meetings and we see everyone and as like Spear as a group is pretty tightly knit. Um, but I mean, like Zoom has been somewhat of a blessing in disguise. It's great because we can still meet up. Um, it's a lot easier to meet up with different student groups who you might not normally see because getting together at one time virtually and just having a bigger meeting rather than trying to plan around everyone's like busy schedules has been great. And then also like we recognize that if someone goes to a meeting and we have a discussion and we talk about next steps we want to take, they're going to tell their friends who might not necessarily go to the same school, but that information still being circulated in other places where it normally wouldn't. We'd normally be all in Princeton, New Jersey, kind of staying on campus. On that note, what are some of the virtual things that Spear has been able to do or projects that you've been able to work on, even without kind of those face-to-face interactions? I think abolition, police abolition and divestment um, have kind of become our two major campaigns. But I think also there have been a lot of exciting kind of webinar opportunities that are happening throughout the country. And so like, even if one person attends a meeting or one person attends a seminar, it's been really helpful to be able to like have that information be more circulated and kind of build our knowledge in that way. And I think Zoom very much facilitates that in ways that we didn't necessarily expect it to. And so I think a lot of our work has become in some ways easier because everything is virtual um, and it doesn't require students to physically show up in a certain place. The point about people physically showing up is a good one um, because, I mean, that's like one of the hardest things to do when you're organizing is to get bodies where you need them because, and we see this a lot with like posting on social media now, it's great. Like we're educating, we're circulating information, but one of the main struggles, not struggles, but it's definitely a more difficult part of our organizing is getting people in place in person in order to show physical support because that's often the most visible support that we can get from authorities. You mentioned kind of what the social media impact has been as of late. We could talk more about what the impact of social media on Spears' efforts has been and how it's either made things more difficult or easier in terms of organization and also education. 
I think social media can be a very dangerous tool when it comes to organizing. Um, it really... I suppose depends on what it is that's being circulated. I think recently it's been encouraging because um, so much of what has been circulating is kind of in line with Spears' ideological goals. Um, I think initially when they can't wait was circulating, I was a bit discouraged just because, I mean, not to say that the reforms are useless, but there are a lot of the reforms that we talked about before that have the dangers of legitimacy. Um, and so I think in some ways, social media can be and has been very helpful in terms of education. It just really depends kind of what's being circulated. I'm interested to hear what are your kind of go-to resources that you think people who are listening might be able to go to? Yeah, so I will say there's a wealth of media, um, including like books and movies through Princeton's University Library that are great. So just a few titles. Um, Agents for Change is one that one of my AAS professors um, in a history class I took, showed us, and it was great because it was talking about student movements, and it really emphasized the fact that student movements in the 70s, which paved the way for like African-American studies departments, um, different ethnic studies departments, were not achieved through like peaceful protests, which is something I think a lot of people might be interested in watching, um, especially with the whole narrative that's going on now. Like We can have change, but there has to be peaceful protests first. I know in my own research in becoming an abolitionist, because I went on a very similar journey where I was into reform because I saw, hey, these are tangible policy changes that we can make, like they should do good for the world. But I started reading Our Prisons Obsolete by Angela Davis, The New um, Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. There's something else that I just read recently. Oh, it's actually written by a Princeton professor named Kiago Yamada Taylor, and it's called From Hashtag Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation. So I think, like, at least for me, reading has been really great, and even visual media, if I, like, am getting too tired to pick up a book, there are a lot of great documentaries out there. Yeah, I mean, I kind of echo that. Um, the person we mentioned before, Micah, has actually a very, an incredible kind of compilation of resources that he's put together in support of police and prison abolition. And this was even before the current uh, Black Lives Matter movement kind of resurged throughout the nation. But yeah, I think reading has definitely helps me kind of like hone my critical thinking skills, but then also taking classes within the AS department and really learning what it means to be a radical scholar and then a radical student activist has been really transformative. And so, yeah, I think being students, I tend to love learning through the academic sphere um, and then having my activism support what it is I'm learning and I guess kind of vice versa. Yeah, so we'll definitely put these where people can find them. There were a couple of things that you guys said that I want to go back to. One mainly being, especially now, we're seeing all of the calls for changes, like systemic changes to be made at Princeton and as well as at other institutions. What is the responsibility of student activism and what's the history of student activism that we can kind of look to for inspiration as we get ready for the fall semester and, and semesters beyond? I mean, going back to that movie that I just mentioned, Agents of Change, that's a really great way of like looking into the history of student activism and how that can be used as a vehicle for real change um, in university policy, in the way that universities comport themselves in the sphere of social justice and activism and how that there is really a place for it. I will say there's always a fear um, because, of course, we want to learn about this in an academic way to support our beliefs or if um, anyone has questions, we'll be able to give them informed answers. But we, we need to realize, like, yes, it happens in the academic sphere, but also there are very real personal experiences that are behind it. And so 
we, we kind of have to realize part of that is listening to our fellow students on campus, especially the black students on campus who often feel like they're unheard by the administration, by their professors. And we have to remember that but we, we really want to support our fellow students and center their voices and their personal experiences because it's a very human issue. Yeah, I think kind of just jumping off of that, we also really try to recognize that we're standing on the backs of decades of activism that has come before, long before Spear was founded. And so operating in real recognition that we can do the things that we do because of the students that came before us. And then in that vein, also working to support the community organizations that have been doing this work to, for decades rather than acting like these are our own original initiatives and ideas. So I think something that Spear really tries to do is give credit where it's due and really recognize that we are just kind of one organization working in pursuit of a common goal and working to, to support other organizations who have long been working in pursuit of that goal. Yeah, if you could maybe name a few organizations on campus that students can either get involved with or reach out and support, that sort of thing. There are a number of activist organizations that may or may not be doing the same work that SPEAR is doing. Um, for example, the fossil fuel divestment campaign that I mentioned before is doing some really incredible work um, with regards to environmental justice. YDS is a group that we sometimes work closely with. Um, yeah, I, we actually have like a small list of organizations somewhere that we know that we can turn to if we want something advertised or if we want kind of support in that way. Um, so yeah, I mean, there, there definitely is activism on campus and it exists. Yeah, I think just one of the groups that also came to mind, because there are a lot of intersections with our work with prisons, um, PSIE, Princeton Students for Immigrant Empowerment, um, which was formerly the Dream Team. Um, they're also like doing some great work and it's really intersectional with what we're doing. And then other student movements that have just like popped up. I know there's the Change Woodrow Wilson School now that's just been starting. And I think it's great to see students like becoming more dedicated and involved in their own education in the institutions that they're learning in and trying to change it for the better. Yeah, so definitely a lot of really good places to turn to, a lot of good resources to get involved with. This episode was produced by Isabella Rodriguez and Katie Heinzer under the 144th Managing Board of the Prince. Many thanks to students for prison education and reform for joining us in conversation. Don't forget to check out the many resources that were mentioned, all of which are available in the description of this episode. For The Daily Princetonian, I'm Mark Judici. Have a great week.